This week on Merchants of Change, we've got Esther Iamu from Growth Q. Esther spent seven seasons as a professional dancer and cheerleader in the NBA and NFL. She went on to a 16-year career in the sales organization at Cisco. Today, she is the founder and CEO of Growth Q. Here she is, Esther Iamu. I'm J.R. Bunker, co-founder and CEO of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes and military veterans into becoming a professional salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? Today on the show, we've got Esther from Growth Q. Esther, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. So for a little bit of context, um, our podcast is really, we, we built it for new salespeople and, and people that are considering a career shift into sales. And yeah. our mission, our mission at Shift Group is we help elite athletes and military veterans become elite sales professionals. And all the guests we bring in are, are former athletes or veterans who have found success in sales and business. Um, what we like to do is kind of start with the sports background, talk about the transition to sales and business, and then we finish with some business and sales lessons that you've learned along the way. Sound like a plan? Sounds great to me. I'm excited. Awesome. Awesome. So um, I always start with a really broad question. And I guess to start, I, I, I always ask, like, if I were asked to ask you to call back some of your fondest memories from your dance and cheer experience, where does your mind drift off to? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I spent seven years in this game, six in the NFL and one in the NBA. And one memory is consistent, whether it's on a court or it's on an open field with 65,000 people in a stadium. And that feeling is always the tunnel and the national anthem. You know that feeling. You've been there. The entire 65,000 stadium person stadium is completely silent. Everyone's on their feet. You can hear a pin drop. You can hear the birds flying over. Everybody is all in accord waiting for that national anthem to start. And you take that deep breath. You look across. You can see the players on the field. You can see your teammates all hand on heart getting ready for that national anthem. People that come to games every year, they've got their kids with them, their grandkids, right? And everybody's standing up on one accord. doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, what party you follow. doesn't matter. At that point, we're all united um, getting ready for that national anthem. Like that feeling, there is nothing like that feeling on the planet. I I literally just got goosebumps when you described it. Like I totally know exactly <laughs> you know what it. you're saying. Yeah, it's, you know it, that it's so feeling. Cool. It's, now, obviously, dancing in the NBA, cheering in the NFL—that that's like the height of the profession. And and you worked literally for some of the most recognizable organizations on the planet. And you know, you and I have talked about this, but I'm always really interested in in like organizational excellence and. I'd love mm-hmm. to know, like, you know, now you're a founder, what are, like, when you look back, w- what can we all learn about 
the way that like NFL and NBA teams conduct business? Are there core values, principles, traditions? Like, like what, yeah. what com- comes to mind when I ask you about that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point. And I, I have to tell you, in it wasn't until uh, the NFL and NBA were my clients that I really understood this, this organizational, call it mapping, if you will. You know, take just the NFL. While the NFL itself is a brand incorporated in New York, right? Um, every club, the San Francisco 49ers, the New York Jets, the New, the New England Patriots, you name the team, they're all run as independent clubs as part of the NFL network. And every single club, right, or brand, um, is a representation of the community they're part of. Let's take the San Francisco 49ers, for example. They are a representation of the San Francisco Bay Area, right? They're, you know, um, the people they bring onto the team, the families that eventually move here to be athletes on the team, you know, they become part of the community, right? They, they give to their communities. They are ambassadors of the brand. Uh, of that community of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the thing I appreciate about any of the clubs that I've been a part of is they take that very seriously, right? Like when they're thinking about recruiting people to come onto the team, they think about who's going to be the best representation of our community, who is going to empathize with our fan base, who's going to uh, contribute to this community in the best way possible, Um, who's going to be the best uh, di- you know, diverse representation of our perspective of our experiences here in whatever community we're a part of. And um, that's one thing I've really appreciated about being part of this. And you see this replicated in organizations, right? When you're finding teams, you really want to find those that represent your customer or represent the community you're looking to serve. It's it's so true. Uh, my, bro- my brother played 13, 14 years of professional hockey and, and always when he moved into the different cities he played in. That was a huge part of what you sign up for. And especially, I think, uh, like the NFL cheerleaders, that's you guys are really advocates in the community for the organization, right? That's a huge part of what you sign oh, yeah. up for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I mean, you, you see it You see it in, you know, I've not only danced on teams, but I've also um, judged auditions, right? So being able to be in the, the other side and, and deciding of the thousands of men and women that go for these teams, who makes the cut? And oftentimes you're going off of the rubric of what's going to, what's going to resonate with the fan? What's going to resonate with that person in the stands that wants to see themselves on the court or on the field? Um, and that's, it's incredibly important. hundred percent, hundred percent. Now we keep, we keep throwing out the word team and, and I know Cheer and dance is a team sport for sure. And a huge part of the experience is your teammates. So when you think about some of your favorite teammates from San Francisco or the Jets or the Clippers, what are some of the characteristics that your favorite teammates all have in common? Oh, my gosh. Um, So I got to break this up uh, depending on the team because every team is different. I would say for the New York Jets, one thing I learned on that team is to always dance for the person next to you, right? Uh, we all came from very diverse backgrounds, very diverse dance abilities and technical abilities. And uh, I'll never forget a coach mentioning, hey, look, you can come here and you might have danced on the Rockets. You could have come from Juilliard. You could, 
you know, kick all the way behind your ear. Uh, who cares at that point if you can kick all the way behind your ear and everyone else is kicking right here in front of them? The minute you kick behind your ear, everyone looks bad, right? While you might look, feel good about yourself as the most technical uh, dancer, but the minute you've thrown off the routine, everyone looks bad. So you got to remember to dance for the person next to you. I would say for the 49ers, um, and again, it, they're incredibly focused around community. I think the Niners, a big thing that stood out from the team was always remembering that our differences are what make us uh, unique and strong, not the things that keep us the same, that, or that, that we see our similarities, right? So the differences are really what make us unique as a team. And I think uh, with the LA Clippers, I mean, look, you know, dancing in LA for an NBA <laughs> team when you've got like the best of the best in the industry, working dancers that are out there, right? Um, it was incredibly competitive on that team. But once you got there, um, you never ate alone. You never, you never lose alone. It was always, you know, you reach out to the person next to you, to your right and your left, and you pull everyone up. So if one person is, you know, lagging on a routine or um, having a really bad day or just got out of, you know, uh, something going on at home, everyone is reaching over to their right and left to pull the other one up. What an incredible experience. I can't imagine what the, uh, what the courtside seats looked like at the Clippers too, eh? Like the names and faces. <laughs> I mean, because it's Los Angeles, right? You got all the movie stars that are in. Um, the craziest was always the LA Lakers and LA Clippers games because then everybody in LA came out, right? And you've got the rivalry and it's funny. Um, you know, I'll say this between us girls. I remember one game at the end meeting Snoop Dogg. So Snoop Dogg comes in backstage and he comes over. He's like, look, I'm a Laker fan, but I got to be honest with you guys. You guys are killing the Laker girls right now because you, right? And, and uh, I won't say what he actually said, but you, you get where I'm going. Um, but it was, it's always so cool to see the rivalry between uh, LA Lakers and LA Clippers fans. But it was really cool to get Snoop's little shout out saying that our routines were killing it. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm a, I'm a big Snoop fan, so I love that. That's a great nugget. Um, how do you think? How do you think your teammates would describe you from those days, Esther? Oh God, you know. And since since the last time I retired, it's been a decade. So I, when I first when I retired, it's been a decade. When I first started dancing was 20 years ago. So my my rookie season on the San Francisco 49ers was uh, just about 20 years ago, it was 2004. Um, and we just had our 49ers uh, 40 year reunion. So 250 women took the field and I got to reconnect wow. with a ton of my old teammates and they knew me as like a kid, right? And, um, you know, listening to how they described each of us, right? You know, you go back to the memories and how they described us. Um, my teammates that were teammates with me Back in 2004, I was a sophomore in college at that time. The ways they would describe me would be almost like naively ambitious. Like I was 19 in my first rookie season. I started my first company at that time. I was uh, teaching at two different dance studios at the same time while in college with a full course load. And like 
you know, I was like one of the youngest. It was me and one other person with two youngest on the team. And everyone else was, you know, older, more mature. And they always saw me as like naively ambitious. The later years, um, I would say my last year on the team with the Niners, at least, was 2010. And my t- at that time, I was working in tech fully. I was already in sales. I was like living in LA, actually traveling up to the Bay Area every weekend to dance wow. at the time. And my teammates were like, she was no nonsense. She was always laptop in hand, mobile in the other. Everything was in her calendar. Like everything was a business. And I look at those two women that they describe and I think to myself, are they the same person? Was it, was it crazy different? Um, but I, I, I would say, I think they were definitely the same person, but I think one got a lot more fine tuned, right? One was a lot more like, Hey, look, we only got so many hours in a day. And if we're going to make the most of it, we got to be super organized. We got to be on top of our stuff. And you know, that's just how we're going to have to move. I will say our, so we, we're, we're the same age. Our, our 2004, uh, I was still in high school because I'm a hockey player and we like to stay back. But I will say our, our 2004s were different. You were starting companies. I was starting fights. Too <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. funny. So cool. So cool. Now, this is an important question because I, I think everybody needs to understand this. The reason I reached out to you um, is because I under I understand. I've, I've had conversations. I know the background of exactly how hard it is to get to that level in dance and chair. Is there anything that you wish more people knew about what it takes to make it to that level? Yeah, I think um, I think people often underestimate the level of competition that is there to actually get into the space. Right? Um, yes. You know, it's it's unlike being a football player or basketball player on a team in that you don't sign a three, four year contract and then you're, you're good to go or two year contract and you're good to go. And then you're a free agent and somebody picks you up every single year. You re-audition against hundreds, if not thousands of other men and women who want your spot. No one is safe. I don't care if you've been on a team six years, you can come back and audition on that sixth year and be cut because somebody else has come and maybe they have your look and they've uh they're a little bit more technically trained or they do a lot better on the interview or they come with uh, a subset of experiences that represent the community a little bit better than you do right um and so i i think number 1 would be i think people underestimate how competitive it really is i think number 2 and this one this is one as i started to mature in my dance my NFL and NBA dance career is once you get there, don't forget this is business. Yeah. Uh, there are multi, multi million dollars that go into the production of, um, this sport, the eyeballs, the advertising, the, the in game operations. There's a lot that goes into this and you're part of that equation. And so. You know, you showing up and farting around at rehearsals or uh, not having your stuff together or not coming organized or not stepping in to make sure your fellow teammate is ready to rock and roll. That all goes into the business of things. Right. And so just remembering that it is a business um, is is incredibly important. And then the third thing I would say is um, remembering that you can only do this for a short time. 
and to stay completely present for all of the memories and the experiences that you'll have during. I mean, I have endless stories. Like the Snoop Dogg story was one story. But I have endless stories of crazy stuff that we've seen and experienced in that time. And there's only a short or um, a finite amount of humans on the planet that have experienced that same thing in that same way. And um, taking a moment while you're in it to really be present um, and relish in that because you get it for such a finite time um, is a thing I would just always um, mention to either my teammates or those that are in it now, right? Is just know that you only get it for a short time. So that's, that's good advice, I think, for anybody experiencing anything, right? Like enjoy, enjoy, be where your feet are. That's what yeah. I, always, I always tell people. Um, so good. Now, the, the way I understand it is you actually started working at Cisco as a sales associate, which is essentially, you know, a different term, I think, for, for BDR while you were still dancing. What, how hard was it to be like, <laughs> you know, you're at the pinnacle of your profession in one career and completely a newbie in your sales career? Mm -hmm. Um, and, like, what was that like? And, and how did you find sales? Yeah. So I, I will be, um, I'll give you a bit of the timeline. So uh, okay. my first, my rookie season on the Niners, I did three years with them. I did two years to start while in college, not in tech. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Cisco came recruiting. I started in what is called their sales associate program, where basically you go in, you get trained for a year, kind of like their MBA, if you will. Then you go out in the field. Yeah. Um, I stopped cheering actually once I started with Cisco. So I took three years off of dance altogether. Oh, wow. They moved us to North Carolina um, and yep. rallied Durham at that. Hell, if they'd moved us to Charlotte, I'd be I'd still be dancing. But um, there wasn't there wasn't an NFL team in Raleigh Durham, and Charlotte was like two hours away, so um, yeah. that didn't work out. So I took three years off, one year while in North Carolina came, uh, transitioned with Cisco to LA, got my bearings, if you will, on the job for two years. And then after that two years, um, I then auditioned for the LA Clippers while in LA, uh, did that for one year and then, um, did, went back and did Niners again for one year while living in LA, then moved to New York and then did, um, New York Jets for three years. Now, one thing I would say is, it, that time that I took that break, it wasn't intentional. It was just, luckily, I was in our, our you know, rally Durham and not by a, a team. And so it worked out. But I think personally, it worked out for me because I got the opportunity to have hyper focus on the sales gig and really understanding tech, understanding the language, understanding business etiquette, like corporate yeah. etiquette. Um, Getting my bearings on that for a few years was really, really important. If I hadn't have done that, I don't think I would have been as successful in either, quite frankly, doing both at the same time. How, how did you, thank you for clarifying that, makes a ton of sense. And yeah. you are a total badass, which I think you already know, but I'm just confirming for you. Um, what, how did, how did, how did it, how did you land at Cisco to begin with? Like, like most, oh, yeah. one of the, yeah, one of the things we struggle with is sales has a little bit of a stigma. Um, and we try to get our athletes over that. So how did that come onto your plate? Like, and what were your, what was your initial kind of entrance into yeah, sales? Yeah. So to be honest, um, so they came and recruited at our school. I, was, I went to Santa Clara University. Um, yep. 
And I remember going, they had like a career day thing and like nobody showed up to their career day thing. So I like walked in thinking, oh, let's go see what this is about. And no one was there. So I'm like, what, what's this company or what's this thing you guys got going on? And the sales rep that was there, uh, she kind of sold me on it. She was like dressed to the nines. She looked like she had her stuff together. She talked about how sales was incredibly lucrative. And, um, but it was also in technology. And I'd started out my, um, I started out as a computer science major when I went to Santa Clara. And she's like, it's, it's technical. So don't think you're just kind of selling, you know, knives and vacuums. Like you're coming in as like a, you know, a solutionist, if you will, for clients. And so that intrigued me. And she's like, you know, when you get the gig, they send you away to North Carolina for a year and then they move you anywhere in the States you want to go. And that kind of went, huh, this is an interesting opportunity. I actually didn't even really understand that it was like a sales gig, if you will. I just saw, <laughs> hey, this lady made, makes a lot of money doing whatever that she's doing. B, it's technical. Um, and C, I get to move away. All right, let's see what it's about. And that's really how I got, got dropped into it. Yeah, yeah. By the way, like, I think it's an important call out to make. You said she. That's an important part, I'm sure, of what sold you was who was at that career fair. Is, yeah. that, is that a fair statement? 100%. I saw myself, right? I think, I think the big, you, you couldn't have said it better. I saw myself in that individual. God, I wish I, I like kept up with her, could find her. But I remember seeing, I remember seeing her and thinking, huh, if she could do that, I, I could probably do that, right? Um, and I think that yeah. representation was really, really important and what, what drew me in. A ton of other companies came and I just couldn't see myself there. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think that's really important. To, and, and who knows, maybe she's listening to this and she'll find Hopefully. you. <laughs> <laughs> now, those, those early days of sales, right? Uh, what, what was like, what came more easily to you? Is there anything that mm. you struggled with in, those, in that first like 12 months? One of the things that stood out in the earlier days, I mean, look, being as humble as possible, in the first 12 months, it was mostly learning the technology and the company and the etiquette. I had a bit of an advantage in that I went through Cisco's networking academy in high school. They wow. came and brought, they did a trial at our school and brought the networking academy to our high school to be able to offer up like uh, advanced placement credits. And I needed all of them because of the way San Jose Unified School District is set up. Um, I had to take as many AP classes as possible to be able to qualify to take, you know, college prep um, um, tests to get into college. And so I just stumbled upon it and I learned about, you know, computer networking. I was super like inspired by it. And it was the whole reason why I went into um, computer science at Santa Clara. So like by the time I got to Cisco, like all the stuff, the OSI model and like binary and like languages, I already knew that stuff. So I had a bit of a, a, an advantage going in, but I think the toughest part was seeing, um, connecting the dots to global business, to technology. What my view mm. of business is, and companies have been through the eyes of my immigrant parents who like came to the States and like they started businesses, small businesses, but really understanding large scale corporations, how they run, um, 
that, that was like a, an aha moment that I had to like push myself to get through. Uh, but once like that lands, it becomes, it's, it's like clockwork, like literally it just becomes so much easier. Yeah. We didn't, this question isn't in there, but I'm curious to get your take because I always tell we, most of the most of the kids that that come through our program didn't take Cisco networking classes in high school, as you can imagine. Um, so I always tell them like, "Hey, first you the technology and Cisco's a little different because it's like really the the, the ping power and pipe that bi- that businesses run their entire organization off of. But generally, when you're getting a technology job, you actually want to start with the business side and understand yeah. like." how companies invest, why they invest, you know, solving problems, that type of stuff. And then the technology kind of comes over time mm-hmm. through like almost drinking from the virus. Would you, would you agree with that? Like 100%. priority list? hundred yeah. percent. And I think, you know, to, to your point, once I got that, everything else became easier, right? Totally. Not where I, I leaned a bit into my advantage in like knowing the technology more and the, the unfortunate part about that is like, that was great when I was in the incubator and I could like compete on tests and exams against my peers. But once you get in the field, they don't want to hear about your nice shiny box. They want to know yeah. if you can solve their problems. And the only way you can do that is if you really understand their business. That, that's a really good point, right? Like nobody cares about the GBICs and a UCS if they don't know, like how, how is UCS going to help drive, you know, cost down and growth up basically. Um, that's really good. I love that. Exactly. Um, now we've had we've had a couple Cisco people on here, and and I put Cisco is like to me somebody who grew up you know in Massachusetts. It's like one of those legendary places that is like an unbelievable place to be from, right? You got the EMCs of the world, the Oracles. These are like legendary companies. Are there any like lasting lessons? from Cisco that you still use today? Yes. Um, and to give, to give companies like Cisco and Oracle and others credit, there is a, um, there's a book I talk about often and love called Super Founders. And in that book, they talk about um, one, they talk about uh, billion dollar founders and where those founders come from. And there is an overwhelming number of billion dollar founders that come from these like, call it unicorn breeding companies. And Oracle's on that list. Cisco is on that list. Um, Google and Facebook and Microsoft, as you would imagine, are on that list and Amazon and others. Um, but the thing, the, the, the uh, traits that come with working at those companies are operating models and like operational rigor, um, you know, making sure that you're uh, consistent and you have systems and processes for how you run um, and do your job and connect with other places across the business that do their job um, just stands out by far um, from others. I'll tell you, um, in comparing like how I have to run my business today and interviewing talent that could run in our business today, you see the difference with talent that have come from truly strong, well-operated companies um, to those that maybe have come from a startup and they're kind of figuring stuff out. There's a 
level of operational rigor, business acumen, um, customer engagement, uh, customer experience and customer success um, focus that comes from working at a company like a Cisco or an Oracle or others. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see it all the time with some of the sales leaders we work with. You can, you can tell when they, when they grew up in places like that, for sure. Um, so full-time seller, full-time sharing and dancing. And, and you talk about like, you, you definitely got the entrepreneurial bug. Um, what, what inspired that in you? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess it was your parents, but, but <laughs> well, tell me. No, you nailed it. Um, you know, my my parents were both Nigerian immigrants that moved to the UK, had us, and then we all migrated to the US. And um, education was always number one, um, but uh, entrepreneurship to an extent or freedom of building that dream, if you will, was always number two, right? And so that entrepreneurial spirit was always there. They figured out how to find where there were gaps in the market that they were uniquely qualified to go solve and they solved it and, you know, created wealth because of it. And that's really where that came from. My first company was I found a problem, which was a gap in the dance education industry for young girls from call it age four, all the way through 16, that really wasn't focused on self-esteem and yes, dance, but also really helping um, them feel good on the inside and uh, about themselves and, you know, created dance camps that went across the United States focused on that gap. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, my parents definitely inspired us to kind of find where there's gaps in the market uh, and figure out where your superpowers could could help fill that gap. So cool. So cool. I'm like uh, my I'm, I'm a second generation American, but what's funny about like my family's background is like my dad, my dad still gives me crap because I don't have a civil job with a pension. Like it's like almost the opposite <laughs> of like your experience. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. Listen, I think in our, in our parents' eyes, we're always like, you know, you could be doing better. According to, I don't know if you've like seen the stats, but apparently Nigerians have the highest amount, highest number of graduates, like postgraduate, and graduate degrees in the United States of any other immigrant uh, demographic. Wow. And so just the fact that I only have a bachelor's degree is like already, oh great, you're a failure in our, in our household. <laughs> My mom's like, I'm like, mom, like any, any of this sound good to you? No, 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 you don't have a, you don't have a master's or a PhD, so. Uh, who's, who's playing high the master's, Esther? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, oh my gosh. Uh, well, I, I want to dig into this because it's how we got connected. I'm so like blown away by the mission and the vision. And I think it's really important for our audience, especially the sales leaders who listen to this. Tell us about, about Growth Q, why you started yeah. it and what the mission is. Cause I'm, this is my favorite part about our conversation. Oh, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Growth Q really started because I wanted to serve the the old Esther, the Esther that just started out in her sales career and looked around and up and um, wanted something that just wasn't there. And 
What GrowthQ is, is a community and marketplace for sales professionals, but underrepresented sales professionals um, that really want to learn from the career journeys of those that have gone before them, but also um, have an equitable playing field for them to get connected to where their skill sets match what um, the industry might be looking for. And so what we do is we match underrepresented sellers to jobs, to mentors, and upskilling resources that can help them be the absolute best at what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like a huge part of it is taking out some of the bias that still exists in, in the hiring process today, right? That's absolutely right. And you got to remember, pedigree bias goes both ways, right? So, you know, think about what we just went through in 2023, um, mass layoffs at some of the world's largest and most notable companies that went through huge spikes uh, in growth during the pandemic and really needed to consolidate. You've got some of the best and brightest leaving some really great companies. Some, you know, had been there for years and off the market for years. Some of that talent, you get someone coming from Google 10 years at, at Google or, you know, Microsoft or Amazon, and they hear of no name brand company, you think they'd even give them a shot? It's, it's sometimes unlikely, right? And so um, we give, you know, great companies with incredible leaders the opportunity to get access to great talent that just wouldn't necessarily have given them a shot uh, because we've now removed pedigree bias. And same on the other end, right? You get somebody that just, they've got incredible talent, but you wouldn't have thought to give them a shot because maybe they they come from a different industry or, um, you know, from a different part of the country, you wouldn't have thought to go and recruit from. Um, but, you know, you might have that diamond and we help to help you find that diamond in the rough. That's a, it's such a good point, um, especially like somebody who goes to one of those big companies. That's like that's where they're comfortable. So yeah. very likely they're going to try to find that again. And I didn't realize you you had the both sides of the marketplace blind. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's so smart. It's important because um, you know we, you've got you've got talent that has incredible skill sets that are transferable but they may just not know how to translate them. Um, and same with companies, you might have great opportunity there with great compensation or great ways they go to market or great uh, career um, uh, upwards mobility, for example. But, you know, because all you have is to see or to judge off of is maybe a logo, a name brand and what they put on that, that job post, uh, it might be hard for you to navigate that. And so we try to play the, um, translators in between, if you will, um, and help uh, individuals find the right um, uh, space or next jump for their career that will help them navigate where they really want to go and their aspirations and vice versa for companies that are like, hey, we just got to find the right talent and help reduce the time to ramp uh, for the sales rep when they get in in job. Yep. Ramp time, reduce attrition, all those things mm -hmm. are are things that were the business problems that, that we're both trying to help companies solve. Totally. Um, now, this next generation of, especially the athletes, uh, they're coming from a world where they're, you can make money now as a college, a college athlete, college cheerleader, football player, hockey player, it doesn't matter. You're, you're you know, it's like Jay-Z, I'm a businessman, right? right. Um, and, and, and because of that, 
they have a much, much deeper entrepreneurial drive than any, any generation I've seen. I know deeper than like, I have very few friends that started their own companies. And now we're talking to a lot of these kids. And it's one of the questions we ask early on is like, where do you want to be in 10 years? And they all talk about, well, I want to start my own business. And we like hearing that because we like to say, okay, cool. You better learn how to sell if you want to start your own business. So really important question. You're a CEO now, founder. How much of your job is selling? 100% of my job is selling. You are consistently selling to investors. You are selling to your customers. You're selling to your employees. You're selling to yourself. Yeah. (laughs) You're selling to, you know, partners who you might need to integrate and work with. You're, I mean, you're constantly uh, having to, and, you know, think about what selling is, right? You're connecting the dots of a problem and a solution, and you're showing how those connect. And you're constantly having to do that, whether it's convincing somebody that, their career journey of where they're going, the portion that you get to rent as their employer is worth it to do it here than any other company. Uh, or if it's selling to a customer that they should give you a shot uh, at, at that business, you're constantly selling, constantly selling. Um, yes. So knowing yeah. and understanding those skill sets are so important. There's, there's a great clip right there for social media. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I, I started my own business, as you know, a couple of years, 18 months ago, uh, but after, same as you, 16-year career in sales, um, one of like my core mindsets <laughs> when I approach like the idea of selling, I- even if that's internally, externally, yeah. we got to sell our candidates, we got to sell companies, investors, all those things you talked right. about. One of my core tenants, if I were going to write a playbook, would be be interested n- not interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, are there any little nuggets and core beliefs that you have about sales that would go into your, into your playbook? Yeah. You know, one of the, I, whether it's my business, whether it's when I made a million bucks in the W2 as a top 1% seller, I always put these, like, this framework into place. Three prongs, super simple. Number one, your foundational business plan. Number two, your relationship map. Number three, your systems for revenue growth. Those are, that's like my playbook, if anything. And, you know, your foundational business plan is all the stuff you think of. What are you selling? Who are you selling to? And what are your goals and all that? But if I think, if I take the relationship portion and I double down in there, you cannot underestimate the value of team mapping understanding where your strengths are, understanding where your customer needs are, and understanding what team you have around you to go in to engage and sell with your customer or, you know, wherever it is, understanding the strengths and weaknesses of yourself and your team are so, so critical. So, so critical. Um, I, 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 in most of my selling career, I sold like to really big customers, like big global, you know, They've got the customer has like hundreds of thousands of employees around the world. And there was, I couldn't go and sell to everybody. I'm one person, <laughs> right? right? I have one perspective. I also speak one language. Um, and so it was so important that I figured out where the needs were, what my strengths or what my weaknesses were, and figured out how to leverage and engage a team around me to 
touch as much of my clients in the ways that it made sense for them um, as possible, right? Whether that's having HR to talk to HR, whether it's having engineers talk to engineers, whether it's, right, like wherever that was, the one big stamp I would say that's so critical, at least for me, is always understanding my team, my team heat map. I, I, I grew up in the channel and I will tell you, it's, you just, I think the GAM, the GAM approach by Cisco, which is what you just described, is, is the best in the business. Like nobody executes that GAM approach to, to customer service the way Cisco does. That's so, it's, you said it perfectly. It's, it's awesome. It was, it was, it's fun stuff. It's fun to watch. Um, it yeah. was fun to experience. I learned a lot during that model. Um, very, very different than, in other places, but I, I tell you, it was the global account manager role or even, you know, account director as you go up and level and have more and more people on the team servicing one customer. Um, most fun job I had, I had of all. That's awesome. Um, and that's a good transition into like you're building a, a business now. I think the most important part is hiring the right teammates. Mm -hmm. How, how, like what overall, like how do you think about building a team? to join you on, on this amazing mission that Growth Q is on. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, it starts with me. Just like I would talk to any founder, I would say it starts with you. Understanding your strengths and understanding your weaknesses is where you gotta start from, from the beginning. I made the biggest mistake of like getting in, hiring a ton of folks and then getting to work and people were like stepping on each other and people, I, like it was it was a whole hot mess. And we had to just like start from scratch and have a really, really hard look at the business. And I had to be like, all right, these are the areas where I'm strong. You put me in front of a customer, you have me go sell, I'll do that all day. But these are the areas I'm not so strong. And so that means those are the places where you gotta find people who are really, really good at those areas. And we trust each other to, to work together. So I would say for anybody starting a business or, or building a team, is start with you, figure out what strengths you bring to the team um, and where you're weak, and then go hire for the areas that you're weak. I wish you told me that two years ago. <laughs> I wish I told myself that two years ago. <laughs> it's so true though, it's so it true. It is, man, it is. Uh, well, we, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, Esther. These are the last two questions. We ask every guest these two questions. Um, the first one is, if we asked you to highlight one of your skills that that's made you elite in in your sales profession as a leader, what do you think that that number one skill is? Connecting the unconnected, connecting the unconnected, uh, whether it's connecting uh, potential partnerships that could happen, whether it's um, helping opening the open the door for a solution for your customer that may not even be the thing you're selling. Um, whether it's connecting somebody to someone they would have never met had it not been for your connection, um, makes you just immensely valuable. Uh, you know, people will constantly think, gosh, that person cares about me and cares about helping support me, um, in, in that way, whether it benefits them or not. So I would say for me, it's connecting the unconnected. I think you just named the episode, by the way. I love that. <laughs> connecting the unconnected. There we go. So good. All right, last question. So at Shift Group, when we see somebody that's operating at the highest level, we like to say they are dialed in. 
And mm. one of the reasons we work with athletes and veterans is they really know what being dialed in looks like from their past life. Yeah. How would you describe a sales professional that is dialed in? I would say a sales professional that's dialed in is one that is customer obsessed. They studied their customer. They studied their industry. They studied their customer's peers. They, they know the challenges the customer goes through. They know their successes. They know their weaknesses, their strengths. Um, they speak the language of their customer so deeply that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. You, you wouldn't even know what badge they have. You would think they, you know, they work at, they work at and for their customers. Every client I've ever had where I've overachieved with them is when they, they feel as if I should or have uh, a badge at their company. Like I work for them and I'm advocating for them at whatever company I have. That is a dialed in sales rep. Oh my God. I love that. Uh, when, I, when I was running enterprise at my last company, I used to ask my reps, are you carrying a bag or are you carrying a badge? That's right. And there's a difference. That's, that right. might be my favorite answer we've gotten so far because it's, it covers every, like if you're customer obsessed, it means you know your organization too, because if of you don't course. know your organization, you can't advocate for the customer. So of course. that is so good. And, and, and you can see the tie in between connecting the unconnected and being customer obsessed. Like it's so obvious. Oh, Esther, such a good conversation. Thank you so much yeah. for your time. Um, and I'm excited for the future for both Growth Q and, and Shift Group. Me too. I'm so excited for us to continue to collaborate. This is awesome. Thanks awesome. for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.